welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series 13 and episode 7, where we're going to look at the death of Jesus for the second time. This is part 2 of our study of the story and the account of the death of Jesus. I hope you've had the opportunity to listen to the previous episodes because the two fit together very closely. And I hope also that many of us will have had the opportunity to listen to series 11 and 12 and the earlier parts of series 13 because uh, it's always important in every aspect uh, of this narrative at the end of Jesus's life to see everything in context and to realize that a big story lies behind the immediate events. And at the beginning of series 11, we began to tell the story of the things that happened when Jesus came into Jerusalem on that final Sunday, five days before he was ultimately executed. And every single day has been significant. The Sunday was a huge crowd gathering to welcome Jesus with rapturous excitement. On the Monday, confrontation with the religious authorities became very public when Jesus went to the temple compound and challenged their market trading and overturned the tables of the traders, causing great offence. Tuesday was a day of standoff in the temple compound as the religious leaders asked hostile questions of Jesus to try and trip him up. Wednesday was a day of destiny when in the village of Bethany just outside Jerusalem where Jesus and his disciples were probably staying during a, a meal and a hospitality event Judas Iscariot made the fateful decision to go back into the city quietly secretly on his own and to uh, meet up with the religious leaders and agree that he would be the betrayer of Jesus and bring him safely into their hands and they promised to pay him uh, good money for that. And things moved on very quickly after that. But the underlying theme, as we've stressed all the way through this teaching, is the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Although Jesus was widely popular with the people, the religious establishment represented by the priesthood and the Sanhedrin and other groups like the Pharisees were solidly against him and determined to get rid of him, deeply fearful of him, deeply threatened that he would undermine their privileged position in their society. So once Judas Iscariot had been uh, the authorities, it was only a matter of time before Jesus was betrayed and arrested. And that only took just over 24 hours because on Thursday of, the, of that week in the evening, Jesus had the Last Supper together with his disciples, which we've discussed quite extensively in a variety of uh, different ways in a series of episodes, uh, because a lot of things happened on that occasion. But halfway through that supper, Judas Iscariot left and told the authorities that he anticipated Jesus would end up later that evening in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, just outside the city walls in the Kidron Valley. That's exactly what happened. As we saw, Jesus went to Gethsemane, he prayed, his disciples fell asleep and then suddenly Judas Iscariot and an armed gang of temple guards and others burst into the garden and Jesus was arrested after Judas betrayed him with a kiss. Then Jesus goes to the Sanhedrin who are convened at night 
in the high priest's house and he's condemned as a blasphemer and then he's handed over to the Roman authorities in the early morning of Friday. The intention of the authorities is to get rid of Jesus as quickly as possible before the crowds can mobilise in support of him. And in order to do that, they need the collaboration of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who alone has the authority to issue a decision, a legal judgment of execution upon uh, a member of their society. And he's very reluctant, as we saw when we looked at the trial before Pontius Pilate, we saw he's trying to really escape from this responsibility and pass it back to the Jews. But they pressurise him so much with a crowd gathering and chanting outside his headquarters that eventually he gives in. And we saw in the last episode the Roman soldiers leading Jesus to the place of execution called Golgotha, just outside the city gates. And we discussed using the help of Luke's account principally the first three hours that Jesus spent on the cross out of a total of six hours before he died. This was approximately 9am to midday on Good Friday morning. And we saw that uh, the suffering of Jesus was tremendously great at this time. Let me just uh, remind you of one key aspect of that narrative, which is the three statements that Jesus made from the cross that are recorded during those first three hours. There are a total of seven statements that are recorded of Jesus whilst he spent those six hours on the cross. And the first three statements are all directed towards the needs of other people. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Luke 23, verse 34, speaking of the perpetrators of his execution, the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities and Roman soldiers. He spoke compassionately and with power to the criminal on the cross who pleaded with him for mercy. Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise, he said, as recorded in Luke 23. Salvation came to that man at the very last moments of his life. And then his final statement is directed towards the needs of his mother, who bravely and courageously stood at the foot of the cross while her firstborn son was being brutally murdered. And seeing John the Apostle there, Jesus said, Woman, here is your son. And to John, here is your mother. John 19, verse 23 to 27. And in this way, he cared for the needs of his mother by ensuring that John looked after her after he had died and risen and left this earth. Now we come to the second three hours, which are very different. There's a different feel to the narrative. Uh, there's a different atmosphere and there's a different focus. And we're going to use Matthew's account as the primary means of telling the story. Matthew chapter 27 verses 45 to 56 is our primary text and we're going to look at that now. From noon until three in the afternoon darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, 
Lema Sagaptani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now the fundamental change that takes place at noon, halfway through this six-hour period, is clearly described in the first verse here. From noon until three, darkness came over all the land. Luke 23 verse 45 adds, For the sun stopped shining. This darkness is mentioned in Matthew, Mark and Luke. But what is this darkness? How can we explain it? Well, lots of explanations have been suggested. Some people suggest maybe it was a natural phenomenon like an eclipse of the sun. Maybe it was a, some worldwide darkness related to such an eclipse. But these explanations don't have any real foundation scientifically and historically. We don't have any evidence for this. The best explanation is to say that this is actually a miraculous divine phenomenon that affected the local area. God intervened uh, in the natural world in the local area around Jerusalem to produce what we might describe as a murky greyness rather than a total darkness, as if a huge cloud cover had come and the light from the sun had been restricted hugely and all of us have had that experience of a massive difference of light that comes from cloud cover. Well this was something like that perhaps even more extreme than that where the local area just felt uh, heavy in the atmosphere and the light was restricted. We don't know any other possible explanation for this but divine Interventions in the natural world are a commonplace reality in the Gospels. We see it time and time again in the miracles of Jesus. And some of these are divine interventions in the natural world as well as in the human body to bring healing and restoration. So this is a perfectly reasonable explanation 
And it seemed natural for the gospel writers just to tell the story without even any explanation, as if it was common knowledge that this was the case. No one who had been an eyewitness would have disputed that something strange happened during those three hours. Now, the significance of it almost certainly is that it is in these second three hours that the focus of Jesus' suffering moves from suffering at the hands of men, the Romans and the Jews who'd brought about his death, to suffering in his uh, role as saviour and bringing about salvation for us. He was fulfilling the role of a sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning sacrifice on the cross. And we're going to just describe that in a little bit more detail in a moment. There are four things that Jesus says on the cross during the very last moments of his life, during the very last minutes of those six hours. And I'm just going to go through those now because they are the main things that we're told about in these last three hours. We don't see many significant human interactions going on as we do in the first three hours. And that's a significant difference. But we've got four statements from Jesus at the very, very end as his life, his physical life is just ebbing away, which help us to understand what is actually going on uh, in his death on the cross and give us some insight into the atonement that is being accomplished through Jesus's death on the cross. Now, the first of these sayings is mainly about his physical suffering. John 19, verses 28 to 29. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. That statement speaks of the extremity of the physical suffering. Thirst was a common symptom or outcome of the process of crucifixion. And the second statement is the one recorded in Matthew that we've read already. And again, we should imagine these as happening very, very close to each other in the last few minutes of Jesus's life, because that's the implication of the chronology and the expression and the context for each, four, each one of the four of them. Verse 46 of Matthew 27, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a quotation from Psalm 22 and verse 1, which goes on. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cry of anguish? Verse 2. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Now, Jesus, in quoting this psalm, is quoting one of the few psalms that were understood to be messianic. It was a psalm of David, 
but many Jews understood this to be prophetically indicating the suffering of the Messiah. And this is a much quoted psalm in the New Testament. So what is this what does this cry mean? It's sometimes called the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can it be true that his father had forsaken Jesus? What had actually happened at this particular point? We can explain this in the following way. Jesus is experiencing at this time in these dark hours, a sense of separation from the experience of intimate fellowship with his father caused by the process of bringing about atonement. And this was a unique experience that had never happened in the eternal relationship of father and son. But at this point, Jesus is receiving the punishment for all of human sin in an atoning sacrifice. He is the substitute for human sin. And so in some mysterious way, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, is being poured out on the Son of God in these three dark hours, particularly, and on the cross generally. This darkness is symbolic of that process of achieving atonement. And so at the experiential level, that sin being poured upon him means that he doesn't experience the intimate fellowship with his, with his father for those moments and those times. This is a very mysterious reality about which we can only speak in very general terms. We can't say that we fully understand what this means. But there's no other way of meaningfully explaining Jesus's words. And it does fit well with the theological explanation of the atonement that's given elsewhere in the New Testament. Let me just take two examples. Romans 3 and 25, verse 25, in a very critical passage about Jesus' death on the cross, Romans 3, 21 to 26. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. This is a statement of what happened on the cross. God, that's God the Father, presented his son, Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement. So the father saw Jesus's death on the cross as an atoning sacrifice where the penalty and punishment of sin of others was falling upon him according to the substitutionary atonement principle, which is fundamental to the whole Bible and which is expressed in the Old Testament in the sacrificial system and articulated clearly in Leviticus 17 verse 11. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Paul, on another occasion, expresses it this way. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God the Father actually made his son, in the words of Paul, to be sin on the cross, to be so identified with the sin of the world that it is literally connected to him in that atoning moment. It's poured out on him. He's taking that penalty and that price of judgment for the sin of mankind. No wonder Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me at the experiential level? He couldn't feel the fellowship with his father because the wrath of God was being poured out on him at that moment. But it was only a brief moment within the time scale of the cross and particularly within those three hours and perhaps most acutely felt at the very end of that time when Jesus uttered those words. But then in John 19 verse 30, we have the wonderful statement. When he'd finished the drink, Jesus said, it's finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This Statement it's finished means it's paid in full. So that statement sheds light on the previous statement. Jesus experiences that tremendous, unthinkable suffering and feels forsaken in an experiential level because judgment has fallen on him. But then he knows the moment when it's finished. It is paid in full. The work is complete, the atonement is achieved. And therefore, a few moments later, according to Luke 23, verse 46, Jesus can say, he called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The seven statements of Jesus from the cross tell us a great deal. The first three tell us about his compassion and mercy towards the people around him. And the last four speak specifically of the suffering of paying the price of atonement, taking the wrath of God and the judgment of God upon himself, being made to be sin, even though he had no sin, for us. They tell us different aspects these statements about that process. I'm thirsty, the human cost. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The relational and emotional components of suffering. It's finished, speaking of the moment when he knew the burden was lifting from him. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, speaking of his trust and his relationship with God. And this, of course, this statement indicates to us that the fifth statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was just a temporary experience, the fundamental reality of being in close fellowship with his father is right there in the last statement. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now the human responses to the death of Jesus are, according to John, that a soldier pierces his side with a sword to confirm the death. And in Matthew's account, which we read, 
the soldiers are very shaken by this experience and say, surely he was the son of God. Meanwhile, Matthew 27 also tells us that the women who had supported Jesus were watching at a distance. They watched everything that happens, and this will become very important for our story in the next episode and the next few episodes. But I want to conclude by just reflecting for a moment on the uh, statements that Matthew makes in chapter 27, verse 51 to 53, about the physical things that happened at the time of Jesus's death. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus's resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Three prophetic signs that something fundamental and important had happened. The curtain of the temple being torn. This is almost certainly the very large curtain that divides the Holy of Holies from the holy place. It's almost certainly this curtain that is being spoken of. And no one was allowed into the most holy place, the inner sanctuary of the temple, except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, because God's very presence was understood to be there. But suddenly this amazingly large curtain is torn in two. And any onlooker, the priests and anyone else who could look through from the other courts into this area would be able to see right into the most holy place right into what the Jews understood to be the place of the presence of God. Now, this is a symbol of access to the presence of God that was now being achieved by Jesus for all people, not just the Jews and not just through the law of Moses, which was now going to fade away. It was the law of Moses which set up that system. And that was going to fade away because Jesus was bringing a new covenant Matthew also mentions a local earthquake. The earth shook and the rocks split. An earthquake's another sign in the natural world of something fundamental changing. We've had three hours of darkness and then we have a sudden earthquake. And then we have the tombs breaking open, the seals breaking, the stones in the front of the tombs cracking and falling away all over the city of Jerusalem. And then after Jesus' resurrection, some people appeared in a, res a resurrected form, presumably a temporarily resurrected form, in Jerusalem for a few days. This is a prophetic sign about Jesus' power over death and the certainty of the resurrection. And so it is that... In these two last episodes, we have described some of the key features of the story of Jesus's death on the cross. Some final reflections. Jesus showed immense courage in these dreadful hours, this awful humiliation, this piercing physical pain and the terrible spiritual anguish of bringing about the new covenant by being a sacrifice, a substitute for our sin, by bringing about 
atonement, being made to be sin for that short time. Someone who knew no sin, taking upon himself the sin of the world. This remains something of a mystery. But we can understand the basic reality very simply. He's actually achieved that for us. So that enables us to have confidence that we can come into the Christian faith knowing that Christ has literally taken our sins on the cross. And knowing the story helps to make it more real to us. Therefore, we can find forgiveness and know that our sins have been taken from us and transferred elsewhere. These powerful prophetic events, the temple curtain being torn, the earthquake, the tomb shaken and opened, the resurrection appearances of godly people in Jerusalem, all these indicate that something absolutely fundamental is taking place. However, the disciples are confused and scattered. We only have a record of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, at the cross, according to John's account in the statement where Jesus gives the care of his mother to that disciple. We think it's John from all the available evidence, but we don't know where the other 10 disciples are. Are they there? Have they scattered? It appears they've scattered, they're confused, they're fearful, they're afraid they're going to be arrested and executed themselves. But the women are there. They're watching everything very carefully and they're going to be particularly interested in Jesus's burial, which we'll discuss in the next episode. But this story leaves us with some lingering uncertainty. Something incredible has been achieved. But what happens next? The story can't be fulfilled can't reach its conclusion until Jesus is raised from the dead. We'll be discussing that in series 14. Meanwhile, the final episode of this series will describe the burial of Jesus and the significance of the things that surround that event. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.